Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. So uh, I say this pretty much at the beginning of every Gospel Rant. For you who have joined us, this is a rant. It's not a Bible study or sermon. There's usually not three application points. We're going to go places that most dare not. We're going to consider some things. We're going to speculate. We're going to be subjective when we can. So look, you can be troubled or disagree, but we're going to have a lot of fun anyway. And listen, we're going to say some things that you probably haven't heard, but they're all legit. They're biblical. And just like any rant, you can weigh it and study it. You can look at the passage and hold on to what you think has merits. Um, Again, the reason we're doing this, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and I have to tell you, a lot of commentaries uh, get stuck in exegetical ruts. One person said something 100 years ago, the next person quoted them, and so on and so on and so on, until we have, believe, we have this passage locked down. But in fact, we've just stopped doing good exegetical investigation So we're going to mine deeper, even though it takes us into maybe some dangerous, actually just fun places. Here's the thing. we got to get the Sermon on the Mount right. It's the foundation of all Jesus' gospel and life. I think we've been biblically sloppy. So in this section, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we shouldn't be angry in the strongest of terms. But come on, who doesn't get angry? I mean, that makes me angry. (laughs) we're all in trouble. Uh, So what is he saying and why is he saying it? And particularly in that context, I'm going to suggest this is Jesus at his very best Jewish rhetoric. And let me see if I can convince you. If you like it, pass it on to your friends, tell your Bible study group, your missionaries, your pastors, your seminaries, your Bible colleges. We're so cool with that. Uh, Send it to your email list, uh, post it on Twitter, Facebook, and thanks ahead of time. If you want to give feedback, by the way, we encourage that. You won't be the first. Bill at gospel-app.com. Now, before we plunge in, many of you already know that we are now partnering with Life Audio with this podcast. So a few changes, not many. Here's one. We're going to take a short break to hear from a sponsor or two. Then we'll get back to the Sermon on the Mount. Stick around. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay. Welcome back. Some interpretive principles. If you haven't been with us for the Beatitudes, let me just briefly say these. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, keep in mind, as we do the Sermon on the Mount, here are some basic principles. Number one, Jesus was not speaking to a well-heeled Christian audience who just want to be more godly and reduce their guilt, um, who want God to hopefully say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. No, 
That's how we teach it typically, but he was speaking to a mixed group of unbelievers who would have felt most likely that God had abandoned them, or maybe they didn't want to have anything to do with him either. Or two, uh, second principle, this is an honor-shame culture, not guilt-innocence like we have in the United States. is so important. So the crowd's biggest perceived problem was not their need to understand what the law says so they could do better. No, they were shamed. They wanted to be restored to honor and face again in their family and tribe and villages. And to accomplish that, in an honor-shame culture, they need a patron benefactor of some social worth and recognition and status who can proclaim them by fiat people of honor again so that the rest of society would agree. Jesus's language and rhetoric in the Beatitudes particularly was him becoming their patron or offering to be. So don't think so much salvation like we understand it post-cross. Think more that these unlikely, unworthies, unenviables are becoming worthy and enviable because of this new relationship with Jesus. He puts his arms around them and he identifies with them and they identify with him and his rep. They felt it. That's why they followed. And third and last principle, there's more, but these are the three biggies. Something happened on that hillside. This was not just a class. This was not a weekend conference. These people were changed, a little or a lot. A miracle happened, and they began to feel worthy, loved, respected, and it would have been noticeable, and and that would have begun to spill over to others, a little or a lot. They became more righteous in the sense that we unpacked in the Beatitudes, that, that the righteous man or woman actually cares about the community, cares about the happiness of others more. If they're focused in on themselves and curvatus in, say, the self turned inward, they can't do that. It's just the way we're made. But now something has changed them so that they're looking outward more. They're being more sensitive. They're being more aware of around them. All right? I think you're ready. Let's get into the text. Matthew 5.21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that's ego de lego human. He's going to do this six times. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, right, angry, will be liable to judgment. Same, same word. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh, my goodness. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's so much, so much uh, to say here. Uh, first, people have rightly noted that when he says, but I say to you, the I, the ego is emphatic. And Jesus is clearly making a point of authority, which the religious moralist Oh my goodness, that would have shocked them, and they would certainly try to undermine it because it seems like, seems too messianic. But Jesus is standing tall. But I say to you six times. Okay, uh, we've come to a, a new series, if you will, six arguments or presentations, arguments uh, that Jesus is making, antitheses, some people have called it, but it's really hyperthesis, meaning he's not contradicting the thesis of the law, he's just uh, putting fire to it. He's going far deeper in emphasis, and that's what Jesus is doing. So you have heard that it was said uh, to the old, the Torah, rabbinical writings, but I say to you, ego de lego human, uh, the first three, anger, lust, and divorce, very personal, intimate. The second three, oaths, revenge, and hate deal with broader public relations, politics, some have noted. 
All six relate to faulty people and a groaning creation that Jesus cared so much about that he came to die for them. Remember those three principles from the Beatitudes. In this first one, Jesus addresses the action that is the is arguably the highest of all contempt towards a, another person. You kill them, right? You take their lives without permission. You murder them. It's, it's the ultimate contempt, and it's ungodly. It's uh, dehumanizing. It's, it's horrific to take the well-being, the name, the reputation, the face, the status of a person uh, is, is still contempt. And what Jesus is saying, it's also still a murder. So murder is murder, whether you're angry whether you're gossiping, whether you're, you're slandering, it's still a murder. It's still disrespectful and dehumanizing. And God's DNA that we saw in, in uh, Luke 4, 18 and 19, when Jesus says, this is my mission, we saw it in the, in the Beatitudes, is to actually raise up those who have been murdered, to, to resurrect the dead, so to speak. But in this case, it's those people who have been shamed, those who have been treated with contempt, overlooked, disavowed, disrespected, cast away, trashed. This is Jesus's emphasis. This is his point. His ultimate emphasis of the Torah is to go and, and, and resurrect garbage, the, the ultimate recycle. So is angry is a present tense participle, can be translated as being angry, carrying anger, remaining angry, nursing a grudge. This is someone who's is identified participle as being an angry person at another. You could use the word resent, resenting, there's another Greek word for short-term anger, right? When somebody hits you and you feel that anger, that's thymos. Thymos like, is what one person says, like a flame which comes from dried straw, quickly blazes and then dies down. But here, orge is generally the anger of a man who's nursing his wrath, keeping it warm, mulling it over, and, and just keeping that flame alive for a long time. But, you know, in this context, anger is to be dealt with whether it's long or, or short-term. Okay, so here's Bruner. And whoever says to a brother or sister, you idiot, will have to face the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you jerk, will have to face the hell of fire. The first word, raka, means, as it sounds, stupid and questions especially the mental competence of the other person. The second word, morose, questions especially the moral competence of the other person. Either way, we dismiss the other as mean and not to be honored but as vile and not to be loved. That's Bruner. I love that. Words that dishonor others subject the oppressor to God's judgment, meaning we shouldn't do it. In, in a better world, uh, with better brains, we wouldn't. In heaven, that's, it's just not going to happen. Here's Schweitzer. The crucial point is that attention is no longer focused on us and our striving to be beyond reproach, but on the other person, see the shift on the Beatitudes was shifting from my problems to the other person's problems, my happiness to the other person's happiness. So, uh, and, and so back to Schweitzer, the crucial point is that attention is no longer focused on us and our striving to be beyond reproach, but on the other person and how his living is whittled away by our conduct, even if only by an angry heart. This shift from personal righteousness to the protection of one's fellow men and women is characteristics of the antithesis. So meaning, this was Jesus's point. The beatitude, he says, he's, he is now fleshing it out in day-to-day -day stuff. And I think the crowd is enjoying it. Uh, and I'm thinking the Pharisees are not. All right, another way of looking at this is that the emphasis on righteousness has shifted from the individual right 
to pursue right and comfort the well to the well-being of others. And that fits with what we said. This is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness meant. If you followed the Beatitudes, we historically see this righteousness as being individualistic, behavioral. So being righteous is doing the right things, doing the law. So in, in other words, praying, going to church, tithing, those kind of things, being pure, whatever that means. Uh, but what Jesus is emphasizing is it's that, but it's, it's, he's emphasizing helping other people, caring for other people, honoring other people so they are happier. So they're doing what is right. So it's more likely referring to my desire for others to be made right with God and with others. So community, community well-being, shalom. And remember the context. The context in this whole hillside is that we're trying to, uh, how do we gain God's favor? How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I get God to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant? How can one enter the kingdom of heaven? Um, how can one expect to see God's shining face instead of an angry face? That's the, the question on the minds of seekers. So I think Jesus is being tongue-in-cheek here. He's having fun, almost mocking the teachings of the Pharisees using uh, rhetorical um, uh, techniques. So for him and the people who have been touched on the hillside of Galilee, the question is no longer as important. I mean, how do I gain God's favor? Because Jesus already said they had it. He proclaimed the unrighteous righteous, the unenviable enviable, the unworthy worthy, the sick well. He already said the heaven is theirs. So now he's in one sense, preaching to the choir. They're feeling the birth pangs of a new righteousness, the initial pangs of feeling God's favor for the first time in their lives for them and others. And they're so grateful because they in no way earned it. They didn't deserve it. They were unworthy. But now they have a new patron who not only has their backs, but he is righteous towards them, right? As they are beginning to be towards others and they're feeling it. So Jesus could have added a seventh statement instead of, to the six antitheses. You have heard that God loves the righteous, the sinless, the pure, the holy. But I say to you that God pursues, rescues, and loves the unrighteous, the sinners, the impure, the unholy, the unworthy. And as a result, they become the made righteous and legit sons and daughters of God and loved. And they become more righteous towards others, a little or a lot. So you have heard it said that God loves those who love him with all their heart, mind, and soul. But I say to you, there, were, there weren't any. I, I didn't see any of those. God loves those who did not love him. And now they're experiencing that love a little or a lot. And they are beginning for the first time in their miserable lives, their lonely and isolated lives, to actually love God back. So Jesus is sharing a moment a great rhetorician with the crowd, and the crowd is beginning to get it. I mean, the fog in their head is clearing, the mystery of the ages, that they had got it all right in one sense and wrong in another. But they were on the good side because their new patron made it so, and they are now enviable for that reason. Well, the unenviable, the intransient, self-righteous Pharisees, the unbending Pharisees, not all of them. Like I said, I'm sure that many of the Pharisees got it on the hillside. That's, that's what I think. But I'm talking about the hardened moralists who just won't let go. Those who explicitly or implicitly use rules to, to oppress people, to make them feel shame or feel bad. By the way, those who would look at these poor people on the hillside and, th and think they're fools. They may not say it, but, but they would be thinking they're raka. You know, they're, 
They're just morally incapable. He's doing the, the same, they are doing the exact same thing Jesus is talking about that is as condemnable in God's heart as murder. Uh, they're not going to see it, many, but, but by the way, we all do it. Even as I describe this about the Pharisees, I'm kind of doing it to them. It's human nature. But what Jesus is doing is you know, subtly, not so subtly, he's mocking them. He's making fun of them in a rhetorical way. So, oh, you righteous, I've got some bad news for you. You've heard that it was said, wink, wink, that I've heard that you say to oppressed, beat up, crushed people that they should not murder anyone. And if they do, they risk judicial wrath of God and final separation from, from grace. But no, you've missed the mark. You undercut things. You lowered the bar. So now as you go out and oppress other folks, <laughs> right, there it is, ramp it up. You're the teachers. Really teach the law to its fullest. And I tell you, and I have it on good authority, that if anyone, wink, wink, because this is certainly how they're feeling about Jesus right now, I mean, the Pharisees. So if anyone is angry or calls someone stupid, which Jesus is assuming they're doing, uneducated, uh, we don't know this, Jesus, what school does he come from? Who represents him? Who does he represent? Right? So anyone who is angry or calls someone stupid or does put downs or shakes their head and scratches their beards at somebody, rolls their eyes, makes somebody feel stupid, ill-informed, shaming them, meaning murders them, they risk not only a trial before the human courts, that's serious enough, but the wrath and judgment of God. Karat, the separation from God in the heavens forever. And the Pharisees were all over that, and yet they weren't aware or didn't want to believe that how they were teaching about God was murdering people. And I'm going to call it subtlety, but it's hard to miss if you're standing there angry at Jesus. You're burning as Jesus is saying the Beatitudes. He's, he's, he's giving the heavens to these people? Who does he think he is? Well, there it is, anger. Or telling people that, that uh, you know, behind his back that this guy's untrained, he's unfamiliar with the law. <laughs> Even though Jesus wrote the thing, uh, you know, um, he is saying that the Pharisees' fate is pretty dark. Though they nominally, in their words, want the favor of God, and I assume they do, they're headed the wrong direction because they're angry at God. They're angry at Jesus. And so, guilty as charged in mean, how the tables have turned. Jesus is now instructing the instructors. And the Pharisees, the, the religious moralists, the unbending ones, are in a box. They're treating Jesus like a theological rube, a populist, ill-informed manipulator, one of the many messianic characters who's out for power or for whatever, and he's dividing Judaism. He's undermining their good theology. And so Jesus points out that the, their anger is not helping their case, and they're undermining God and saying that he's saying that your strategy kind of needs to be rethought, right? Because listen, God on that hillside embraced these people, loves them, and said the heaven's theirs. And the Pharisees would deny that? They're working against God. And how do they expect to get God's favor if they disagree with him in this so critical amount? These are people that he loves and they despise. And that's out of sync. I wouldn't want to be there. And we miss the fun that Jesus is having. It's serious too, don't get me wrong, but he's having some fun with the moralist of his day. I think he's smiling and winking. He's exposing them as the true dividers and the underminers of God, right? 
And who are they undermining? This is the joke. They're accusing God, Jesus, in the flesh as being a divider and underminer of Torah. I mean, right? You get the joke. And I'm suggesting that the people on the hillside kind of began to get it. And we should get it today after 2,000 years of thinking about it. But sadly, for the most part, we're kind of on the Pharisee side. These are new principles. We just need to work harder. Otherwise, God's not going to like me. But Jesus already told the people on the hillside that they're gods and God is theirs. They have the favor of God. And then he begins to manifest the righteousness of God in them. It's different. It's a different strategy. So, like I said, sadly, our focus, most focus in commentators and preaching and conferences is how Jesus has ramped up the requirements to earn God's favor. And so moderns usually say that, you know, the point is Jesus is clarifying the requirements of the law. And so if we want God's favor, if we want to feel like we can eventually expect God's favor, we not only need to stop murdering, but you know what? We need to control our anger and be very careful choosing our words. New laws. So here they are. Don't use the word fool. I can remember uh, being raised and being told not to use the word stupid or fool because it's biblically, it's, it's, against, it's against God. It's a sin. So new laws, don't use the word fool. I could feel that. I could think it, but I just don't say it, right? And, and by no means be angry. Well, I, right? Tell, try telling an angry man or woman that Jesus said they shouldn't be angry. How do you think that goes? I've tried it. I mean, good luck with that. And so much for being a peacemaker, right? The, one of the Beatitudes. So what's Jesus saying? Is, he, is that what he's saying? Yes and no? Yes. Look, of course we're to treat others with kindness and respect. Hey, we're to love them with all of our heart, mind, and soul. The Torah says that. And God the same way. And that includes enemies, Jesus will say. That includes those people and institutions that have offended us, that have shamed us, that have scarred us, that have cast us away, betrayed us, abused us, treated us lightly, uh, or treated others with bigotry and shame. Okay? We should, but we don't. We should, but we don't. It's our, in some ways, it's not all, all our fault. It's how our brains are created. We're responsible and accountable, but we don't. Look at the history of the world. You know, so for, for the bottom line of this teaching to be, okay, so stop it. This week, we're not going to be angry. You know, gird your loins and stop being angry. Choose to not be angry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So here's an experiment. Next time someone hurts you really badly, they, they abuse you, they betray you, they rob you, they hurt a friend of yours. I just want you to choose to not be angry. There we go. Good luck with that. There's a place in your brain where the will largely resides, the prefrontal cortex, where reason and choice is. You know what? It has almost zero control over the part of your brain that manages that emotion of anger. And particularly if you've been hurt or you feel like you're at risk. When, when that happens, your amygdala, which is in your midbrain, not your prefrontal cortex, it signals the release of very powerful brain chemicals, including cortisol, it slams your brain and you into a fight, flight, and free cycle. It's how God made you. And that cycle uh, will last about three hours, maybe four. The first thing that happens is your prefrontal cortex, where you make choices, make reasonable choices, it's chemically shut down at virtual light speed, meaning your choice and free will 
are no longer free. They're offline. So you think you're being reasonable. You want to be reasonable and rational, but you're not. You can't be is how God designed you so that you don't have to think through what to do. You act. You survive the attack. Make sense? So the point, even though Jesus says don't be angry, don't respond hurtfully, don't use derogatory terms such as stupid or fool, all those things that pour out of our brain, or I hate you, you can't help it. It's brain science, and Jesus knows this because he created it. You can bury it, and sometimes, and you can choose to do that, uh, but it's still there, un- undealt with. Am I right? And it, it'll trigger, it'll, it'll overflow. So here's the pattern for the rest of Sermon on the Mount. You should love your enemies, but you don't, you won't. You should pray this way, but you don't, you won't. You should not be angry, but you will be angry. You should not be lustful, but you will. And partly it's not your fault, but partly it is. Totally it's brain science. All right. This is a good place to take a very short commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. All right. Let's get back. Welcome back. Let's get back to the first antithesis. First, an announcement. We are producing, so speaking of conflict, we're producing an on, a new online training journey for parents of teens and tweens called Good Enough Parent. That's goodenoughparent.online. It should be launched soon, and it's free. It's absolutely zero charge to Christian parents. We believe that this is such a big problem right now, post-pandemic, in the middle of a recession and inflation and all of those things, in the middle of all the incivility around. We think parents need big-time help. So take advantage of this. Again, goodenoughparent.online. Pass the word out. It's 10 to 15 minutes a day, these little sermons, these little tips for 15 days. So if you sign up, we'll send you one a day for 15 days, just 10 to 15 minutes the uh, beta testing has been amazing, very encouraging uh, for, for Christian parents. So this is for parents of teens and tweens, goodenoughparent.online. So this is one of those things that we teach parents. When their teen or tween explodes uh, over whether or not to eat their peas or to put their smartphones down or to not go to Jimmy's house this evening, it's not all their fault. Their amygdala is tripping, and their prefrontal cortex, which, by the way, for teens is still under construction until they're in their 20s, that's offline, even partially constructed. Isn't that helpful to know that they're not being reasonable? That makes sense, right? And if you try to be reasonable with them, again, good luck with that. So listen, check out the program, goodenoughparent.online. So is this what Jesus is saying? You know, you know I came here... I incarnated to bring God's message that maybe you got the murder thing down, but you know what? There's murder and there's murder, and you guys are still murdering because you're angry, you're despising, you hold people down, you harm them. And that's that makes you as guilty as a, as a murderer, right? So you should. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think he's looking around and seeing the thesis, we should, but we won't. If what he says is true, None of us would ever escape the anger of God. So, listen, no wonder why so many Christians, uh, when they come to the Sermon on the Mount, they come to a series on the Sermon on the Mount or a conference, they leave even more discouraged because they they see this. They hear these things and go, oh, my goodness, I worked real hard not to even murder somebody. But now you're saying, I've committed murder. 
almost every day for my entire life. Well, that's a little extreme. So they're concerned that when they see God face to face, he's going to be disappointed, disgusted, or angry, or walk away because all of those times they murdered people. So is Jesus clarifying it to make it even harder for us? Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Right? Are you a murderer or not? So is that what Jesus is saying? No, I, I don't think so. Not at all. We shouldn't teach that way. Otherwise, we're guilty of murder. So how should the moralists have responded when Jesus said that? They responded likely, why, oh my gosh, okay, we'll try harder. That sounds right. We need to try harder. We need to be kinder. So I'm going to get my kindness muscles. I'm going to uh, get my anger mus muscles to atrophy, and I'm just going to love people who hurt me. Well, there's a second approach. Remember when the apostles said, who then can be saved? Well, that would be the right response. Lord, if that's true, then I failed today and yesterday and tomorrow. And because I can't control my anger, I don't know how. I've tried. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. I need a plan B. And that's what Jesus came to bring. The plan B is that Jesus has come because he loves the sad, the angry, the violated, the oppressor, and he has come to pay for their legal woes himself. Heaven will be filled with redeemed, angry, and abusive people, perpetrators. Matter of fact, from God's point of view, that's all there is. So I think he's having fun, and I also think and imagine that some of the moralists began to get it. They may have been just holding on to their reputations in hopes that God would overlook some of their failings, but now... How do I control anger? If that reading of Torah is correct, and this is God saying it, then who has hope? What's plan B? I also think that the crowd finally felt that their new patron was the real winner. Um, I think this is one of those moments. He was indirectly defending their new enviability. He was explaining the plan B. At each, but I say to you, I think they would have gone, oh, we're busted again, but... They're becoming more and more grateful that Jesus rescued them from themselves and has promised them that special honor related to God in spite of their failures. God loves failures because that's all there is. The moralist can't get that joke. They're usually not very funny people anyway, but the true failures can. They flock to Jesus. Let me say, say it a different way. The greatest shame has come from the moralist, including family, friends, etc., they're failures. They are true Torah failures, and they reasonably should never expect a second notice from God. And he has long ago made up his mind about them and their like. They have fallen from any hope, and yet now the shamed have a savior. Their shame is being displaced by his patronage, love, and honor with which he treats them. And now he enters their greatest battle on their behalf. He's using Jewish rhetoric to knock the moralists down a notch, expose them, and in so doing, dragging some, those who become aware of their ultimate immorality, he, he's dragging them into their number, and the crowd is growing. Moralists are becoming enviable and beginning to love the angry immoral a little or a lot. All right, uh, we're going to stop there and pick it up on the next podcast. I hope this is making some sense. There's a lot to consider. Um, if you have any feedback, bill at gospel-app.com. Love to hear it. We're saying some things that probably you haven't heard very much, and maybe it makes you angry. Oh, 
Oops. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, we're going to have a little fun. I just want to take a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, uh, Bible study, parenting, and a rant, I hear. Okay? Next time, we're going to continue on this first antithesis of Jesus. We're also going to give you a tool that you can use to helpfully make you less angry. All right? Um, it's it's time-tested, and that will be in the next podcast. I hope you enjoy. So until next time, take heart, child of God. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.